Ivan Locke. I just got your message. It's a joke, is it? Look, I know it's a shock, but it'll be okay. Oh, sweet monkey Jesus, this is not happening. Is this a joke? Are you wearing a fucking red nose? What the fuck has happened? It's a family thing. I don't have a choice. I just need you to fix this up and be all right, okay? And solid. What? Have you gone mad? Ivan, at 5.45 tomorrow evening, Now Playing has a new movie review podcast coming out. They've got listeners from all over the fucking world descending on us at 5.45. They're reviewing the 2014 movie Lock, okay? So what does Arnie say about this? I haven't spoken to him yet. Oh, well, he's gonna fucking... He's gonna... He'll go fucking sideways around the house like his ass is on fire. I know. I know. Look, I need you to do this for me, right? So start rounding up Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob so they can host the podcast. And then call me back. What? And me here in Chicago can go to fucking hell? Two words I've learned tonight. Fuck Chicago. Well, obviously the podcast will have spoilers and harsh language then. I know. I heard you. And I don't blame you, okay? But I'm not trying to keep my job. I just... I just want the podcast to go okay tomorrow. I want the podcast to go okay, not because of the money. I want it to go right for myself and for the listeners. Right? And for Sean Ray the patron that donated and selected this movie. I know I don't have a job anymore, but I'll do this anyway as a favor to the cinema and to the listeners. And you know why? Because eventually, when the podcast is complete, it'll be 60 minutes long. It'll take 90 megabytes of space, okay? This podcast will alter moviegoer minds and infiltrate minds. It'll be listened to for years to come. I do this for the piece of this space we are stealing with our podcast. I do it for the bandwidth that will be displaced. And most of all, I do it for the fucking movie. Because it is delicate as blood. You really have gone fucking mad, right? Well, that would be a fair assessment, yes. All right. It will work out. I will make sure of it. Why don't we just let these guys start the show? Today we're discussing Locke, starring Tom Hardy. Directed by Stephen Knight. <laughs> this is Arnie, co-host of Now Plague, and no, I've only had one cider. Why do you ask? <laughs> this is Stuart. And this is the host who never trusts God when it comes to concrete, Jacob. Well, if not in God we trust, in Sean Ray we trust. Because Sean, a twofer here, choosing the patron level where he could pick a movie for us to review. And wow, polar opposites. I think the only thing they have in common is they both speak English. We went from face-off to lock. Yeah, did Sean give any reason why he picked this film? He's a big Tom Hardy fan, Mm -hmm. and apparently there's a TV series I've not heard of, a Tom Hardy TV series called Taboo. Yep. He was a big fan of Taboo. Mm Mm-hmm. Stephen Knight, who wrote and directed this, was a part of that show. Yeah, he wrote the screenplays. Apparently all this stuff means something to Stuart. (laughs) And so... He chose the film because he's seen it three times, and he still doesn't know if it's a green or red arrow for him. Hmm. And he loves Hardy. He loves the indie feeling of the film. But is there any there there, or is he just admiring how it was filmed? Does Hardy carry the film strongly enough to get a recommend? He's looking to us to talk it through and see what we think. But I love this because 
we've been talking about this on social media a little bit. I love the fact that he's going to hear us discuss it and then make his own decision. We could all recommend it. We could all not recommend it. But the real important thing is the conversation we have as we walk along that path to get there. And that's really cool to me. Okay, so last week with Face Off, it was a guilty pleasure, a a movie he called bad that he really loved. And this is a movie where he hasn't decided what it means to him. It made an impression. And yeah, I think some of our best films or just some of the most interesting films are ones where you can have debates weeks, months, years later and still wonder what does it all hold. Locke is a film that I have remembered since I saw it back. It came into America when it came on DVD. I saw it, you know, probably about four years ago. And it was because it got all of these glowing reviews. He got an acting prize from the L.A. film critics. And it was on this label. It's released by A24, the most interesting film distributors we've got anymore. Now that Weinstein's gone and Lionsgate makes crap. I didn't know A24 went back that far. I think this came out in 2014. Yeah, they would have just started their roster. So, like, these are the films I would have already seen. Spring Breakers, Under the Skin, Emotion. Most Violent Year, Tusk, Bling Ring, Enemy. I saw them all in theaters. It wasn't like, at first, I was like, I got to see everything these guys do. But it started to become a pattern (laughs) before all of these interesting movies that I'd emerged going, God, have you seen that? I want to talk about it. There was that logo, A24. And definitely, I think Locke is a movie, unlike probably many films most people have seen, starting with the fact that it is, in fact, Tom Hardy and all Tom Hardy. Did you guys know that this movie was about one guy driving in a car for 80 minutes? I didn't know anything about this film when it was mentioned that we're doing Locke. I had to look it up, and yes, I saw that description. Dude in a car talking to people with his hands free set. Uh-oh. And I think you might have mentioned that, Jacob. I knew nothing about this film, and sometimes I love that feeling of just going into something completely unknown, and I didn't even watch any trailers. I wanted to go in unknown. And then when I watched the film for about five minutes, something clicked where I'm like, somebody told me he never gets out of the car. <laughs> I did watch a trailer. That's the only real, you know, I read a two-sentence description. And then I watched the trailer. Set up the wrong expectations. I'll just say that right now. That trailer says, this is a thriller. So I'll talk about it as we go through the film. Like, all the crazy theories I had of what was going on. Because I was told, this is the thriller of the year. Yeah, I love the poster. Because it's tight enough on Tom Hardy. And there's things streaking across the windshield. You might confuse it for the Italian job or something. They're like, intense powerhouse. Yes! I was expecting something like that. The two movies that came to mind for me were Nightcrawler and Drive Mm -hmm. from the poster. And in fact, when I started this movie and Marjorie and I had watched Drive together, she's like, oh, is this going to be like the Ryan Gosling film? I'm like, no, I think this is going to be different. And like 10 minutes into it, she's like, is he going to be in the car the whole movie? And then she went to bed. (laughs) Oh, she didn't make it. Okay. So there's one vote of no. One man shows. How many movies have you seen where it's a guy talking to you for the whole theatrical length? I can think of a few. I mean, I feel like Hardy has almost done this before. Now, there's other people and he interacts, but if you've seen Bronson, I feel like that is almost all about Hardy's performance, even though there are other actors there. Yeah, I'm talking about really stripping it down. Probably the most popular, Eddie Murphy, right? Yeah, the stand-up routines. Yeah, Raw, Delirious. Well, Well, those are just stand-up routines. I wouldn't consider those movie movies. The closest I could think of when I gave this some digging is Castaway. And even that had more people at the beginning and the end, but 
but Tom Hanks and a volleyball for most of the movie was the closest I could come. I've seen a lot of one-man shows on stage. You know, I love Patrick Stewart's one-man performance of Scrooge, and a lot of stage performances I see are one or two people. You know, this movie, as I'm watching it, I'm like, this should be a stage play. This Mm. very easily could be a stage play. Could or should? Yes. Should? I'd say should, because I'd love the intimacy of the approximation with the actor. And why do you feel like that's not going to happen in a movie? There's just something about the physical dislocation and the immediacy and having to do it all in one take on stage versus being able to have the multiple takes. I just pictured this as one person on stage with then various voices interacting with them and that it would be a very intimate experience that I think would work very well in some of those smaller New York playhouses. I mean, even going to Linklater's Before Trilogy, that can almost be a two-person stage play. I don't want to say you can never do this as a movie or you can never do this as a play. But yeah, I think when you have something more intimate like this, to be in a small theater with the person really there, I, I think for that art form, it's just a better delivery system for this kind of film. Here's my theory on it. I believe that when we go to see stage work, it is about being as close as we can to the performer. But when we sit down to watch a movie... It's about being teleported somewhere else. We don't want that same experience with the screen because, one, they're not there. We're never going to get that close. And this is a movie that's going to remind you you're sitting in a chair the whole time. I mean, you will reflect on the fact he's not moving, you're not moving. Not only is this a one-man show, but it's part of this recent trend of films where it's about stationary locations, claustrophobia buried ryan reynolds got put underground or colin farrell in a phone booth or franco stuck in a canyon for 127 hours i've never seen buried i understand that's kind of a one-man show too though i mean all these things are basically a character in a confined location open water even where the people were bobbing up and down with the sharks cube i mean it is rare that this movie is both It is both one man having a dialogue, and again, I think Eddie Murphy counts. Spalding Gray is a monologuist who made Swimming to Cambodia. There are many, I guess you could call them concert films, where people just tell you a monologue. Telephone. Did you ever see that one, Arnie? It was a Whoopi Goldberg film in the 80s where she is a homeless person that wanders in and starts calling people on the telephone, making prank phone calls. Never saw it. Sounds like a (laughs) prototype for jerky boys. Uh, It goes dark at the end. I'll never forget what it does at the end. But there is an appeal about seeing someone you like just have free range to take you on a path. And then we have this other thing where it is, let's deal with the fact that we are not going to be able to move out of this location that in this case it's all tom hardy and it's all a bmw now tom hardy fan i think we're all on the same page that he was becoming a thing at this point and most of the time it's a good thing i mean most of the comparisons you'd make is to young brando or young de niro sean penn or nick cage as i call that on venom yeah occasionally he can be a, like a really terrible picard clone on the worst star trek movie or <laughs> that bane voice in dark knight rises is still quite horrible that bane voice is amazing now it is something <laughs> but i'm not sure what his future will be it could be that he could implode like cage 
But right now, I still feel like he has a lot of credibility, particularly when it comes to period piece dramas and thrillers. I do think that he's angry young man and very actorly and able to physically transform and you give him the right raw. Usually you want the movie to be raw. I don't know if he'd work in a cuddly romantic comedy, but he's actually kind of cuddly in this movie. We'll talk about it. But when you say Tom Hardy, I think he works best in movies where he's really going to go to emotional depths. That's my thinking of him. But I always do think when he does go commercial, when he is doing Bane or Mad Max, which is an art film in the guise of popular cinema. And I never really got the thing with him, though. You know, having seen him in a lot of movies in the early 2000s, we reviewed him in Star Trek Nemesis. That's not fair. Let's talk about Inception, Tinker Tailor, Soldier Spy, Warrior, Sucker Punch, Rock and Roll. No, I'm (laughs) saying you can't pull out their worst things on the resume and say that's what they are. I'm not pulling out the worst things on his resume. I'm pulling out the movies I saw. Oh, well, then you are seeing them at their worst. (laughs) Like, the things you need to see are like Bronson. And I know you saw Inception, Warrior. You saw Dunkirk. I mean, these are the things that you can go to and say, yeah, I see the actor, not the guy getting the paycheck. Yeah, and I liked Inception a lot, but he didn't stand out to me in that movie. Oh, okay. I remember it differently. I'd have to go back to listen to the conversation to see if he did at the time. But as I recall, when he ended up in Dark Knight Rises, I'm like, who was he in Inception? There was a guy named Tom Hardy in Inception. I didn't remember him. And now I know who he is very well because he is a name. But that doesn't mean that I see everything he does or I'm even aware of everything he does. When I looked him up on IMDb, I was like, wow, there's a lot of movies here I've not heard of, one of which was called Locke. But that's where you're going to see the good work, is what I'm going to argue. I mean, if you're not seeing the smaller, edgier stuff, yeah, this guy will be the doofus from Venom, and that would be a real tragedy. And from Venom, too, I have a feeling. (laughs) Now, the other name that we have to bring up here, the one that is probably less known, is Stephen Knight. But he is an Oscar-nominated screenwriter whose best films tend to be thrillers that focus on the immigrant experience. Probably one I'm guessing both of you saw was Eastern Promises. It's what made me really excited about this movie. I love Eastern Promises. I consider that kind of a cronenberg Vigo Mortensen duology with history of violence, and I like both films a lot. Mm-hmm. But he also he got his Oscar nomination for Dirty Pretty Things, which is a great film about immigrants working at a hotel that stumble upon a murderer and it really was very good audrey tattoo i'm getting crickets yeah move on (laughs) not because of him but i have pawn sacrifice on my tivo just because i'm very interested in the life of bobby fisher oh yeah unfortunately like all screenwriters he has moved on and made some pretty impersonal underwhelming hollywood projects like the recent girl with the dragon tattoo spider's web reboot that wasn't very good or you know he made that film where brad pitt broke up with angelina jolie allied remember that one no No. (laughs) yeah exactly i feel bad for burnt bradley cooper's a chef trying to kick drugs oh These are things he wrote, though. Has he directed much besides this? This movie is his second film, and he made it in close proximity to his first film, a movie that you should not see called, (laughs) well, depending on what country you're in, it's either called Hummingbird, Crazy Joe, or Redemption. 
And it is, in many ways, thematically, just like the film we're here to talk about, but not minimalist. It is a Jason Statham action mystery. Oh, boy. Yes. A Jason Statham is a homeless man who breaks into an apartment, rebuilds himself as a driver slash muscle for a drug dealer, and then uses the drug money to redeem himself and change the life of a nun and various people <laughs> on the street. So it has a dramatic element. It's definitely a movie that pushes Statham more into showing his acting chops, which is kind of interesting because he's not usually asked to do that. But he will kick guys' ass in the streets and do the Statham kinds of things. That sounds interesting, as I like Statham usually. Yeah, I mean, it's not awful, but it's just not convincing. The thing that Locke has that's in common with this, it's about a guy that wants to do the right thing very badly. In Locke, I believe the guy. In Redemption, it just seemed phony when Statham is handing out pizzas to homeless people. <laughs> But I think Knight wanted to do something quickly. This is apparently a true story. I don't know a whole lot about it. They didn't speak to it. But something like the plot of this story happened. A guy walked away from his life because he wanted to atone for something that happened. I don't know if he gave his life rights away. They didn't base it enough for them to make that credit. But it does get mentioned in the commentary of this movie that this has some basis in reality. They asked the guy, what did he think of the movie? And he says, well, I'm not Welsh. Tom Hardy will use a Welsh accent, and that was the only comment that he had. Is that what that is? I was trying to, I'm like, is he doing an Irish thing? What's going on with this voice? Yeah, Wales. Okay, I, a lot of English accents all sound the same to me, and so I just thought maybe this is how Tom Hardy really talks. Oh, no, this one sounds very different <laughs> to me. Yeah, there is a lot of different dialects, and uh, what they said was they wanted to find one that wasn't harsh. Not to be too rude, but sometimes spend some time in London, and yeah, I can think of certain areas where you do need subtitles. I don't understand what you're saying. And this is a movie about a man that is struggling to be calm, do the right thing, not lose his temper. We need to have a voice that matches that. And they decided that Welsh people have the nicest speaking voice, I guess, or at least the most calm, soothing. And they didn't have a lot for this movie. I think it was under two million budget. They had two cars that BMW loaned them. They did not get product placement. There was no kickback. They had two weeks. That's funny because honestly, my feeling was, do you remember like the infinity ads with Matthew McConaughey in them? This feels like an 80 minute one of those. I figured I actually watched the whole credits for a giant BMW logo. <laughs> Uh, then they failed. If you think this feels like a commercial, they did not get money from the cars and it really isn't about the car. They had two cars, one to do the exterior shots and then one is to do the rig. They filmed this movie like a play. Tom Hardy would get into a car, this BMW, it would be dragged by a truck through actual streets, not choreographed traffic, not CGI or blue screen. Three cameras were positioned to follow him at all times, and he would do the whole script in one blow. They'd have to pull over because they needed to change memory cards on the camera. So every 30 minutes, they're like, let's just pull to the side here. And then once that was on, Tom Hardy is back in action, and the other actors were in a hotel with a microphone, and they would call in at the right times and interact but you're seeing a live performance this is like filming live theater then i feel that they lost some of that for a movie that takes place all pretty much inside of a car they do some great things visually with the use of streaking lights and i a couple times thought i saw a cigarette burn i'm like why would i see a cigarette burn on a blu-ray and it's just the streaking lights went in such a way that it looked kind of like it burned a hole in the image 
Yeah, the cinematographer said he didn't want the audiences to feel they were in a car. He wanted it to feel like a spaceship, or more to the point, thematically, like a guy just drifting off into the unknown, that he was just falling away from his life. And it's not like there's crazy driving and things. The reason why I specifically focused on the Matthew McConaughey car ads is because it was Matthew McConaughey talking about life, not driving crazy, not doing anything. But then when he was done, he got out of the infinity. And here, with the colorful lights and the use of reflection and the fact that it is visually stimulating... And the fact that he is driving a BMW the whole time, that's where the car ad kind of came into me. By the end of the shoot, they had this movie in 16 different takes. He had done it 16 different times, and then they took the best moments from all of it. It was really the editor's job, and I can't imagine what that would have been like to go and find the version from all of those to synthesize and tell the story. And that's why if this was all taken like that, the editing makes it not feel like a single take. You know, it just feels like a regular movie, which for a movie taking place in a car to feel like a regular movie is actually a plus. Yep. I think you always need to do those tricks. 127 hours cheated by having flashbacks. The sea is pretty big and open water. I mean, I think you always want to find a way to keep people visually engaged, even though this is a movie about dialogue and about, yeah, talking on the phone. Actually, why don't we tell them what it's about, Arnie? Give them the plot, and we'll discuss Locke. Tom Hardy plays Ivan Locke, a construction foreman on the night before the biggest cement job of his life. But now he's driving away from his home in Birmingham to London. See, seven months before, Ivan had a one-night stand with Bethan, his secretary on a construction job in Croydon. Now she's giving birth prematurely. Ivan was raised without a father in his life, and though he knows it will destroy his life, he drives to London to be there when his child is born. On the road, he juggles phone calls. He tries to make sure the concrete pour the next morning goes off as planned, even after he's been fired from his job for leaving town. He also breaks the news to his wife, who decides one time cheating is too many and tells him not to come home. But the movie ends with Bethan calling Locke and letting him hear the sounds of his healthy child. Locke pulls over, overcome with emotion, but says he'll be there soon as credits roll. I mean, this isn't a plot movie, so that's the big of it. I think it's a mystery. We see a guy get in a car, drive away from everything in his life that means something. Why would he do it? What's he driving towards and what's driving him to do it? But it's a character study mystery. Like, do not watch the trailer. Again, intense thriller. I see this construction guy leaving the site, driving away, leaving his family. I'm like, is he a terrorist? Did he plant a bomb at the construction site? What's going to be revealed here? It's a mystery. But man, that trailer really set me up for something that this film isn't. Yeah, and that's film advertising. Would you have wanted to see a movie if it was just about a guy trying to make right on impregnating a woman? What I'm saying is I struggled by the end of this film because... had given me different expectations and I had to reset and reevaluate everything. The best way to see it is, I suppose, the way I did, which is I didn't know anything other than it was set in a car and critics told me that Tom Hardy is really good. And I was halfway there. I had forgotten. Jacob told me it was all in a car, knew nothing. I think knowing that it's in a car is a necessity. I think an expectation needs to be set that the movie isn't going to start when he gets somewhere. This is the movie. I think that was helpful when that clicked for me to not be asking, when is he getting out? (laughs) 
Yeah, and real-time movies are cool. I mean, we talked about it with Before Sunset. Before Sunrise was broken up with editing, but Before Sunset, actually, the 80 minutes that they were talking to each other was exactly as it was. Hitchcock tried to create this illusion with rope. The amount of time it takes to go from Birmingham to London is this 80 minutes. And it cheats, because I thought it was real-time, but... A football game, or as we call it, soccer, is 90 minutes yes. plus halftime. <laughs> and when the beginning of this movie starts, the soccer game hasn't happened. And by the end of this movie, 80 minutes later, it's completely over. It's one. No soccer game goes that fast. You're a minimum of two hours in a soccer game. <laughs> All right. That's what I did find a little bit confusing. Because, yeah, he says he's 90 minutes away. The film is under 90 minutes. I guess he's not quite at the hospital by the end of it. But I did keep thinking time had passed. You know, you'll get these moments where he's not talking to anyone. There there are a few of them. And just driving, I'm like, okay, is 15 minutes passed? But I guess it's supposed to be more or less real time. And we are putting this together. You may not even know that this is England. And, you know, one of the first shots is he's getting in and to the right side of the car to drive and so I'm like, oh, right. And then we see this massive construction site. They do have one establishing shot. That's really metaphorical. It's this base of this future high rise. Something great is going to be built here. And what does it mean that he is taking off his work boots and driving away from it? And we have the inciting incident really within the first couple of minutes. Locke is sitting at a traffic light. You'll notice his blinker is signaling left. And then all of a sudden there's these angry yellow headlights from a truck behind him honking their horn and he impulsively just decides to flip it and go right. I wouldn't call that impulsive. I've been there. The hard decision. You're finally giving into a decision you may not want to. You think you know what you're doing, and then at the last minute you change your mind. Maybe it is an impulse, but it's not like all of a sudden he's just going, he's been wrestling with this. That's what I get out of his cursing as he goes, and the more I learn about it, this is what he feels he should do. He just knows the cost of this is high. We're going to ask why he does it. I mean, that is really, I think, the movie will take at least half its runtime to set up why he might go. But it's worth pointing out he was going to go in that other direction, presumably to home. And then that honk happened. I'm just going to say that I think that honk represents his father. He will ultimately create an imaginary conversation with a father in the back seat, And it was that needle. We'll find out that really is the driving force that he is running away from and choosing actively to be different than this is the story of a man trying to undo a legacy and be better than the man that didn't raise him. Locke. It is a surname that was meant to reference, uh, if you know philosophers, the rationalist John Locke. Yeah. And this is going to be a very rational, logical, calm character. I, another thing that is highly unusual about this movie, more radical than the fact that it all takes place in the car, is the fact this is a character that is almost never going to lose their temper. They're never going to kill anyone. They're never going to lose it and have fights. You think with dramas, it's usually about screaming, not this drama. And I think that adds to the tension because I'm waiting for something really horrible to be revealed from this character, from Tom Hardy's character, Locke, because he is so calm. Like, at one point, this woman who's giving birth to his child is like, I love you, just say it. And he's like, but I don't love you. So I, I he's like Spock here. He is so cold and logical. Yeah, I mean, and we can see from Hardy's performance, it's not that he's unfeeling. It's that he is working very hard to be a site manager. You know, his job, and he's apparently paid very well because he's driving a really nice car is to take on these big construction projects 
He is supposed to be there in the morning for that construction site to oversee the most massive concrete pour that's ever occurred in England outside of a nuclear silo, or I think they mentioned something else. But it requires a mind that is not going to flip out when things go wrong to hold a job like that. And he's trying to do that with all things in his life. And the biggest compliment I could give this film is that it makes a concrete pour super interesting. Like, anything that has to do with this concrete pour, I'm absorbed by it. I'm like, oh, oh no, they got C5 instead of C6? I don't even know what that means, but I'm on the edge of my seat. Agreed. The fact that they're able to speak in that terminology, that I have no idea what they're talking about, but they make me care about it, is impressive. You never see the concrete, you're never leaving the car, but man, they make it relatable. Yeah, it's 11 minutes before we even know who he's going towards. We've had some indication. There are 35 phone calls in this movie. And the first one is Bethan, where she mentions doctors and nurses. We know that he's going to what we might even think is his wife, who's having a medical procedure, 90 minutes in traffic. But it will be 11 minutes before we know that he's going to deal with this child. In between, we see that he's making an incredible incredibly transformative, probably negative decision in his life with his work, that he is going to get fired because he is not going to be there at the crucial point, And he's doling out responsibility to this Irishman named Donald, who I don't think he's qualified for it. And he doesn't <laughs> either. Yeah, to the point where he tells Donald not to take a call from Gareth, who I guess is in charge of the whole site, so they can't even stop Donald from doing what he's being told to do by Locke. The big question I have, I know the answer, but it's interesting to me. There's really no one I know, not to call myself a liar, but no one I know has never not called into work sick when they were not physically ill. Maybe they needed just to rest. Maybe something else was going on. Maybe their child was sick, but the company policy doesn't allow sick time for that. One question that his boss is going to ask as he's firing Locke is, why didn't you just call in sick? And indeed, Tom Hardy is sick. You can see that they incorporate that into his character. He's at one point reaching for cough syrup and sneezing and what have you. He sounded sick, yeah, it, which I thought, oh, is this going to be like an outbreak scenario? Again, I'm thinking thriller. Why is he sick? I'm trying to pick up on all these little clues. Yes. One of the early questions you would have is if the consequences are so dire for his career and he seems to value that this concrete pour goes so well. And for whatever reason, he keeps saying, I don't have a choice. I cannot be there. Why wouldn't he at least cover his ass? And the answer is, I think, I mean, Arnie, what was your conclusion? He is trying to be a good man, and he's trying to make the right choices that his father didn't, and lying would put a blemish on that. He is trying to go the path of the righteous, and he won't lie to anyone. It would make it so much easier to get through tonight if he just came up with a handful of good lies and put-offs, but this is him nailing himself to the cross. He's going to be a martyr and hang for his mistake. I wouldn't even go that far that he's a martyr hanging. I think this is just about his integrity that, you know, he made a commitment for this concrete pour, but he's also got to be there for this newborn child. So he's going to take care of it. We'll find out it's a big deal when he forgot to leave this dossier behind with all the permits and everything. And he meant to leave everything there for Donald, I think, so he could walk him through this. Right. Yeah. Integrity is the right word. Martyr to me means there's some sense of self-inflicted torture. Like I have to do this. This is all self 
self-inflicted. Everything is self-inflicted. And I question Jacob, did he mean to leave it for Donald? He thought he was going home. It was a last minute kind of final admission to his decision that he then turned and decided to go to London. Yeah, I don't know if he was leaving for Donald, but he knew it should have stayed there. When he talks about it, he said, it'll be by this certain place. That's always where I keep it. So I do think that, you know, procedure is everything for him. And the reason why I think I like this character so quickly is because in these early scenes, we pick up on that idea that it's honesty above all else. We can trust this guy. Everything he says, I don't think they're going to do some kind of twist ending where you find out there's something else going on because this guy wears his heart on his sleeve and he's never going to lie, even when it would serve him well to lie. Yeah, there are so many easier ways out of the night than the one he takes. And that's why I use the word martyr. He's choosing the hardest path, but it is a path of, as Jacob said, integrity. There's no lying. It's tonight I'm going to come to terms with everything, even if it means risking everything. And possibly by the end of this movie, we find out, as I said in the summary, he loses just about everything. Yeah. And so what would someone throw it all away for? Typically, you would think love, right? This guy is going to do it because I'm in love. Nothing matters in a Hollywood romance movie more than that. You can throw away your crummy corporate job and all the money and your life before because you love the person you're running to. What becomes interesting is once we finally find out that he's having an illegitimate child, we also find out that he's not willing to say he knows or loves the person that's having it. That is the crazy thing. Like, I don't want him to be like, I love you, Beth. But he is so cold. I can't love or hate you. We don't know each other. He is so matter of fact. This is a woman like giving birth, like give her something. You know, that's just my human emotion. Like make her feel good. But he won't even do that. Like, I don't know you. So I don't know if I love you. And I don't know if I hate you. He is treating her pregnancy in the same way he is treating the site management of the concrete. They are both his babies. And he knows the best way to get them delivered is to have a cool head and to never get emotional. And as somebody who's been in a couple of crises, medical with family and things, that's actually my default is I go into clinical mode. I treat it like a work emergency and I get very unemotional about things. Give me facts and choose solutions. So strangely, I found him extraordinarily relatable in that moment where he's just calm and like, I don't love you. I don't hate you. I don't know you that he's being so forthright and unemotional and not giving in to her emotional blackmail. Can't you just say you love me once? It makes me feel closer to this guy and all of his mistakes. And so does his feeling of responsibility to his job. The fact that he's taking this personal trip and has all this personal stuff going on, but he is not going to just abandon the site. He's going to spend a lot of time on the phone with Donald, giving Donald specific instructions, calling people to make sure roads are appropriately closed and everything this whole way. I do know people in real life who have chosen the path of the Hollywood movie. I've got to leave my job and I'm going to not have money, but I have to do this for love. But you know what they don't do is call work and say, yes, the stuff I'm leaving behind is in my drawer. Here's my password. Here's how you pick up with it. They all just say, well, fuck the job. And here he's going out of his way. I think it's both responsibility, but man, he loves building stuff. 
Yeah, again, I think it's really important whether he gets to stand in that building or get credit for it or to raise that child with Beth in. I think he thinks it's very important to deliver it. You can see in little moments that he's very passionate about that. He may be cool as a cucumber under crisis, but he's very passionate about delivering babies. Yeah, he seems more passionate about that building than when he talks with his wife, with his sons. Very cold and standoffish. You would use the word cold. I feel there's a lot of love in him. I see it on his face. I mean, that's what's interesting to me about Hardy's performance. Yeah, I'm talking about the way I think people might be perceiving him. Yes, his performance is something else, but if I'm Tom Holland on the other side of the phone, who's the voice of one of his sons, Spider-Man. Really? I did not know that. Yeah, I was surprised you didn't mention it. Yeah, I think he's the younger son. He was Eddie. Venom? had (laughs) Spider-Man. But I'm thinking if I'm the wife, if I'm one of his sons, I don't know. He's coming off kind of cold. Like they're trying, Dad, this is so exciting. You got this player that you always just called a donkey. He did this amazing goal in the football game. And, And he's like, okay, well, I'll watch that with you when I come home. If I was the son... Yeah, something would seem off. I'm with Stuart, though, because I see his face and I hear his voice. And when he's talking with his son, he ends by saying, I love you. And the boy's like, what is that, Dad? I think he knows that this is going to possibly be the last night he's able to have a conversation with his son. He loves his children. He has a great sense of responsibility. I think the most important thing in this man's life is fatherhood because he didn't have a father. I did watch the movie twice, and I'm really glad I did, because the first time I did have a little trouble with some of the understanding, and he looks at the rearview mirror, and you see nothing there. He's imagining his father, his dead father in the back seat, who came when he was a teenager and tried to become a father, and because his father was such an asshole, he is trying to be a good father both to his current children and especially to this unborn child. I got really worried when he was talking to his father in the backseat because of my perception of what this film was going to be because of that trailer. I'm like, oh, he's going to do the whole imaginary thing and maybe he's not even driving at this point. Yeah, my mind really went places because of that stupid trailer. Yeah, it comes at the 20-minute mark. And it is everyone's worst nightmare, right? That you become your parent. Like the mistakes that as a young man, you criticize them so harshly for you did this to me, dad. And now guess what? He was had as an illegitimate child. And now he's had an illegitimate child. That is a nightmare. And they even teased it. It's funny. You'll notice some of the early phone calls are from Bastard. He has labeled his boss, Gareth Bastard. It's a funny joke maybe how we feel about our boss sometimes but it's also telling you that's the theme of the movie that this is a character who is a bastard this is a character who wants to make the son that he's bringing into the world not feel that way but arnie you mentioned that this was a tom hardy show and and listing the cast you only listed his name i want to give compliments to all the voice actors in this many of them are people that you know donald is andrew scott if you know sherlock the recent bbc update he was the villain moriarty Really good. Very memorable. If you saw the show, you'll remember it. Didn't see it. Don't remember him. But he's good here. I mean, I do agree. The voice actors are good because you get so much. They have an even harder job. They have to give us all this emotion without even facial expression and body language. Locke, at least, is in a car. He's not able to move. He's not able to pace. You're taking away a lot of an actor's tools when you put them in a car and that's all they can do. 
but you're doing even worse for every single person over the phone. And yeah, the guy who plays Donald is my favorite of the group because he goes through huge emotional transformations. Oh, when that guy calls up drunk, I know he's drunk. Yeah, he's comic relief. I mean, we need someone like him because he's going to make us laugh. And we really understand these guys are friends. I mean, he's going to say, I've never known you to fuck up this bad in 10 years, but it's been 10 years of good. I mean, Donald really respects Ivan. And now this is a father-son relationship. I'm going to let you take the training wheels off and let you do what I do. In many ways, it's that kind of parental gift. And again, I mentioned that I didn't think he could do it. There's a lot of times where he'll spout a statistic and Locke will be like, actually, it's 255 tons. Actually, it's over here. But never sharp, never critical. He never wants it to come across as demeaning or insulting. Again, it feels like the parental relationship you would want. Now, about the backseat and the dad, that is a big surprise. That is the part of the story where we finally understand motive. That up until that point, we might think that this guy was, yeah, maybe a martyr. Maybe just doing it because he's long-suffering. But now we understand that he's being chased by the ghost of what happened to him before. Does he overcome that? I mean, that's one question I had watching it again, is that throughout those angry conversations, many times he's saying hateful things. He will end the drive by turning back and saying, I now know why you did it. You know, I went through that. I think I can share that I spent nine years not speaking to my father. And I remember the day that I picked up the phone and called him. It is incredibly relieving to have that forgiveness and to be able to say, yeah, you did all of those awful things and I'm just going to let it go. And I can let this car journey. I mean, that's why it feels more than just a theater piece in the car. This is the story of a man who's going to say, I don't have to be angry at my father anymore. And it's not just that, it's he understands where his father was coming from. He has this line, I'll do what needs to be done, right or wrong, when he's yelling at his fake dad in the back seat. Just last year, my maternal grandfather passed away, and one thing that was said over and over about him is his outlook on life was, I did what I had to do. And it actually sounds like a miserable kind of way to live. Like, he was a very religious man, and he just did his duty, and went to work every day, and he did what he had to do. And I do think Tom Hardy, yeah, reconciling with his father, he's like, yeah, I am doing the hard thing, and it sucks, and it's not super fun. I get why you made a different decision. And even if he doesn't agree with that, you don't have to agree with it, but to have that empathy, to be able to see why someone has done this, and to see what Locke is going through <laughs> through this entire film, it's not an easy thing to do. And I think we can empathize with what his dad did a little bit more because it's just it's so much easier than having to do all this absolutely i think the hardest thing is him calling his wife you know i understand the need to be responsible for your job i left a job once actually twice and both times i went back for free to finish something i'd begun out of duty to that job Admittedly, I left on much better terms than being told I was fired. I left willingly, but I always wanted to keep good relations and fulfill my obligations. But, man, when he's calling his sons and asking, is your mom there? And the fact that they're watching this football game and... The sons are like, she's wearing the shirt of the team. She never does this. She looks really silly and she's making the sausages you like and everything. And he's going to then break her heart. Yes, this is really hard. 
The lever has already gone through the emotional turmoil. Of course, he's had months to think about this and leaving his family, so he can be calm in this moment. But when you are there and you just found out, she may decide tomorrow, okay, you can come over, we can talk about it. But I totally get the idea that she is going to vacillate between just being nauseated, being unbelieving, and being angry. You have to give people the space to be angry, even though I I would hope eventually she does see more nuance than the difference between never and once is the difference between good and bad. Yeah, I think Katrina, his wife, acts as most people would act. I didn't take this as the end of their marriage, though. I agree, Stuart. I think you're going to calm down, probably hopefully get a bunch of counseling and see if you could work through it. But for the drama of this film and for Locke to have those conflicts, is he going to keep doing the right thing and be there for this bastard child of his? Yeah, you have to have Katrina react this way. All right. Um, Uh-oh. <laughs> I agree. I don't know that their marriage is over. We're seeing within the span of one to three hours, however long the soccer game was, that she is having a vast emotional reaction. By the same token... Doesn't she go a little far with the betrayal and the hurt? So just a little bit. He knocked up a woman and then took off with no notice to go see the labor of that child. I don't blame her for her reaction. Not only that, but I think it is distressing for her that he's managing her. That he isn't emotional, that he doesn't get angry when she gets angry and says hurtful things. Women hate that. Yeah, they want you to meet at their level here. And because he has refused to do that and he's had time to process his own goodbye, it's much more raw. I mean, I totally understand where she's at with it. I get where she's at. I would have liked to have seen a different evolution in her in that night because it feels like she goes through an emotional arc. I realize she has very little time to process this, but she starts off nauseated and physically vomiting. Wow, she is really sensitive. I don't know if she's really, again, I look at the circumstances. Is it crazy to react this way, to vomit, to be sick to your stomach? I just think let the punishment fit the crime. I've never dealt with this. But I have known many people whose marriages survived an infidelity. This was a one-night stand, not an emotional affair. It was a one-night stand with a very bad consequence. And she doesn't believe him. She's like, one time never means one time. And she's spiteful and hurt. Oh, if she's fucking you, she's fucking everybody. And can't we side with that? I mean, would it be infuriating to be so upset to find all these things and the other person's like, we'll handle it. Don't worry. I got to do this other thing. By the way, can you get me this phone number I left in my jacket? That's the hard part. I've been there. I have been in the middle of a fight with a girlfriend and needed something practical. And it was not pretty. Yeah, exactly. She wants him to be concerned only with their household. That's completely understandable, but that's not the game he's playing. I am juggling too much, and I am not going to drop one ball, and you are on my list of priorities, but you're not even necessarily number one. That's the hurt. That's the pain. One other thing I'll point out is that the actress, who I've also seen in many British costume dramas, Ruth Wilson, said that she came up with the idea with the director that she had already wanted to leave Locke. 
that in her mind, because he was more concerned with his buildings and all of that, that she had been dissatisfied without even fully realizing it. And that this was an opportunity for her to go with that feeling of that. Let's do something else because I'm actually not happy in this marriage. That would help. If I could have gotten some of that from the character, that would have really helped that this would actually be a relief to her. This gives her the out where she's not the bad one. Yeah, well, it's there. I mean, it's called subtext. Are you saying she's the bad? I don't feel like she's the bad one in this scenario. It is Locke. She's not the bad one. If she wanted to leave and she just abandoned her family, she'd be seen as the bad one. But now she's able to shirk all responsibility and blame onto her husband because her husband had an infidelity with consequences. Right. It allows her to go through with things that were harder if she thought he was committed. And obviously, they both care about their sons. The thing that's interesting about Tom Holland and the other young actor, Bill Milner, is I think it's true for many men. It's not true for me and my father because my father liked auto racing. And so I never got into it. And so this whole idea of when we talk about sports, we're really talking about how much we love each other is not a thing in my household. But I do believe that many men have trouble being emotional with one another. And they do use things like talking about winning a soccer game as a stand-in for saying, I love you and I respect you. And in fact, we'll see that. And the way that Tom Holland's Eddie, sometimes, like he calls after he knows what's going on. Mom is upstairs throwing. I'm going to talk about the score first, talk about mom, and then I'm going to go back to talking about the score because that's where I'm comfortable. Men aren't. Speaking stereotypically, they're not comfortable talking about their emotions. And Locke is obviously very compartmentalized, very detached from them. We can see that he's going through them. It's helpful because we're in the car with him looking at this incredible internal actor who can give us that performance. If we had a lesser actor, we might not believe that he's as damaged by what he's doing as he is. But to me, it's incredibly moving to see him talk sports with his son, knowing that he's really trying to say, I want to come home with you. You know, they even proposed the idea, you can come home, we'll rewatch the game like we don't know the score. I mean, speaking big metaphor there, let's pretend like we don't know what's going on and have the night we were supposed to have. You were supposed to come home, eat sausages, watch this on TV with me, not drive off to your mistress's birth. Another fine actor working on this project probably could win the Oscar this year, Olivia Colman. She is Bethan. She will be nominated for The Favorite. She was in The Lobster. I really love this actress. She's usually good in rye British comedy. She was on The Orient Express recently, too. That was probably her most popular role. But she is, I think, very relatable. She's more described. We know more about her from the way that Locke will talk. Well, she looks like an oil painting? Oh, no, she doesn't look like an oil painting. Oh, that's right. Yeah, she is no oil painting. Ouch. Yeah, that one really did sting. But he will talk to other people about her and in very clinical terms i'm not in love with this person and i never was we did something good we poured some concrete we poured some wine she told me she was lonely and Locke will even say is it all bad that i helped her out if her problem was she never thought she was going to have a kid if she believed her only chance at happiness is to have another being love her, and that would be a baby, then maybe what he's done isn't all bad. Maybe it's not good. Or is he just trying to rationalize what he did? To me, that sounds like a rationalization. It is, and yet, I mean, I think that there is some moral ambiguity in that. And I do sense from the tone of her voice and all, it's not a surprise that she's having pregnancy complication. I can read a lot of anxiety coming off of her and a lot of need for what he's going to do. 
Yet no amount of anxiety in the world causes an umbilical cord to wrap around a neck. I mean, you could have other types of pregnancy problems, but breach, umbilical cords, those are just physical anomalies. Oh, and when Bethan calls, she's like, I got my phone for just a minute here. There's been a twist. Maybe because we just did all that M. Night stuff. I'm like, aha, that's a hint. Thriller, <laughs> intense. I know something's coming up. No, no twist. Yeah, I mean, the intensity is happening because we're now about 40 minutes in the car ride. We know the score. We know the issues even. So how are they going to keep us involved for 40 more minutes? It's that things are getting worse in all areas of his life. His wife is being vindictive. Betham is having a medical problem. Donald is too drunk to handle these new problems that are emerging at the construction site. The re- bar is all fucked up. <laughs> yeah, I do feel an escalation, even though we're we're not going anywhere else. It's all headed in the same direction. And with Bethan, okay, maybe it's an exaggeration to say that her anxiety is calling an umbilical cord to wrap around her baby's neck, but I do feel like he's going there that night for her because he fears that she will not be able to deliver this baby healthy unless she has the illusion that he's there by her side. And I don't think it's even about delivering the baby healthy so much as she has guilted him into this. We get through inference and statement during the drive that over the course of this pregnancy, they first talked and it sounds like he was more opting for abortion and she opted to keep it because it was her last chance at happiness. She's the one who keeps saying, will you be here? She is in her mind having this delusion of the two of them and the baby off having this happy family thing. He's going because she has guilted him into it and because he wants to be there for the child. I don't know if he's been guilted into anything. Yeah, the wording of that I have a problem with. Yeah, because, I mean, a nun will call up, a doctor from the hospital will call up, and, like, are you on your way? Are you the partner? No, I'm just the father. There's something about how cold rationally is I actually really admire, because I would tend to probably get really emotional in those moments. But, yeah, I do feel like he wants to be there for the birth of his child. That's going against what his dad did to him. It's weird for as much as he's trying to pour concrete and make this building and you know, help this woman with this pregnancy. It is kind of selfish too. It's about him and overcoming his upbringing from his father and what he went through. He's trying to correct all that. It's it's doing something just for him too. Yeah, I do not believe that he's doing it because she made him feel bad. I don't buy that at all. And I don't even believe that he suggested abortion. That's never said in the plot. What's said is, you're mad that I chose to keep it. She asked if he was. Yes. He does not even respond to that. But that makes me think there were discussions about that in between. This guy, I believe his answer would have always been, I will support whichever you choose. He's the site manager. He would not have an emotional reaction like that. I kind of disagree because he could have still been trying to save his family. I feel like this is the night that it all comes out. Again, I go back to the statement I learned in screenwriting class that the film is about the most important events of a person's life. This is the night he's going to take accountability. I don't take it that he was this super honest, I never lied about anything, I took responsibility for everything, other than his buildings. I believe he was completely responsible for his buildings, but as far as his marriage, obviously he lied to his wife a little bit. He went and slept with somebody else. So this is the night that he is going to take it all on but on the way here i imagine he tried to save his ass a couple ways yeah i don't get the sense that that is where the persecution is coming from the persecution is not coming from her it is coming from the invisible man in the back seat 
I think it's both from the conversations on the phone, but I think the reason he makes the decision is the person in the backseat. And we learn a little bit more about this father as it goes on, about how he's dead and Locke keeps going on about how if he could dig him back up and throw dirt in his face again and how he came back. He was drunk and a drug abuser. He came back sober and tried to see if that just made everything okay. Yeah, he thinks that the father apparently had this same kind of epiphany, and it either came too late or it wasn't sincere enough. But the father tried to clean up his act and be a father to him at some point, and Ivan characterizes it as even worse than when you weren't around at all. Is that something that he has a change of heart with at the end? I think it's implied that he could have, but yeah, this is a man that's working through that. He wants to change the meaning of his name. You know, he says, I straightened the name out. He knows why his dad ran away, and he knows that his name, in his mind, was shit. And this conclusion, the climax of the film, we really see how much his name really is put to good use. Like when it comes to Donald, name-dropping Locke is how Donald is able to save this construction site because the guy's too drunk to go get the people that can fix the rebar but when you when he makes him go run which is my favorite joke in the whole movie but he makes him race there drunk to some site where some polish people the only people that can fix the problem using the name lock is what's going to get them to sign on they call him the best man in england and they're like okay we'll do it for lock And I think time and time again, you hear people say that, that here was a man that didn't think his name was worth anything. And he really has it affirmed by almost everyone but his wife that Locke is a pretty good guy after all. And fuck Chicago, if they don't think so. We see that again also when he talks to the congressman or whatever it is about the road closing, who's having his Indian dinner. Oh, Locke. I remember you, and that gets him in there as well. Yeah, I think he's proving to himself a level of value that he's built into his name, and yeah, he's upholding that and hopefully passing it on. I mean, I think since birth, because of of being a bastard, he just never felt like his name was worth anything. And I mean, this is quite a thing to realize that he actually commanded the respect of all these people and that his name is going to to make sure that at least the building's going to be okay. But is the baby going to be okay? That's, again, what we're building to. We're pretty much at the end of this movie, and they're teasing that along. The doctor's been calling, nurses have been calling. It sounds like it's going bad, and it sounds like she won't do the medical procedure, the cesarean, to save the baby life until he gets there and that he has to basically talk her out of it i think she says i do it because i love you but it's because he's able to convince her it's the right thing that she is holding a healthy baby at the end of the movie I had two theories on how this movie would end. Maybe it's because last week we reviewed Face Off, but my mind was very firmly in 90s indie films. I'm like, either the baby's going to die or Locke's going to die. Oh, yeah. I was waiting for a car accident, something. I thought for sure that the twist irony at the end would be the baby's dead. You fucked your whole life and now have nothing. That would be such a bitter pill. Yeah, too, Hollywood's not the word, but you're right, too indie. The most cynical idea or the most happy idea would both feel wrong here. It's I think they hew closer to the reality, which is that there's some good that come out of this, and there's some obviously negative stuff, and there's some stuff that we don't know if it'll be resolved at night. And that way, this movie feels very European. It reminds me of, like, French New Wave more than anything made in the last 20, 30 years here in America. Yeah, at one point, Locke calls up Beth 
nothing and gets her voicemail and he tells her, you deserve to be happy. And I do feel like for Locke, that is an emotional moment. I'm like, oh, okay. He's got some kind of feeling because, yeah, you should be happy. And I, for this guy, that's as close as to an I love you. Like, they don't go syrupy sweet where he comes around to her, but he's like, yeah, you deserve to be happy. And, and again, for this character, that's a pretty good uh, wish to get from him. Yeah, he lays concrete. He doesn't live in the skyscraper. He just makes sure that it can be built. I want a solid foundation for whatever that is going to happen, but I can say that I at least delivered the babies. The building will be built correctly, thanks to Donald and some Polish people at the last minute. And yes, this child, I don't know what kind of future it will be, and I do not believe that Ivan is prepared to, he's never implying that he's going to give up his life and move in with her and raise this baby. But the baby is healthy and has a shot at the future. Well, does this movie have a shot at some recommends? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend Locke? Jacob. I don't know. I kind of feel like Sean, who sponsored this podcast. Uh, Yeah, I don't know. To to really get a grasp on this one, I'd probably have to watch it a few more times. My impressions, again, because I had expectations set up from that trailer, and then it ended. I'm like, okay, I got to reset and reevaluate what I think of this film. Look, I'm not going to argue with Tom Hardy's acting. It's great. There's some gripping dialogue. Again, the concrete stuff. I love all the concrete stuff in this. Oh, it's so intense. How are you going to get the rebar fix and do this and that? Get your permits to close the street down, do the poor. So that's what's amazing about this film. It's a dude in a car just calling people for 90 minutes, and there's some really gripping stuff. And then, yeah, there's all the, the family life stuff, all of that. It feels a little bit gimmicky. Like I go back to, like, Boyhood. Is that a good film because it's a good film, or is it a good film because they did this really crazy gimmick where they took forever to film it with the same people over years and years and years and years? It doesn't mean it's a bad movie just because it's gimmicky. I don't want to see a whole lot of films set with people just in their cars calling other people with their hands free set. But, yeah, for this movie, Tom Hart. I like him. Good actor. I think this is one you might have to watch a few times just to, because it is a mystery that you have to piece together from all these different calls. But I think it's worth it. I think it's worth working through it. So I'll give this a recommend. Stuart. No, oh, yeah, I'm not ambivalent at all. I mean, I feel totally emotionless, man. I feel like I just gave birth by the end of this movie. I am wrecked. To me, this has been an incredibly moving journey. And a lot of that rides on how impressively Hardy has handled this one-man show. It is the best showcase I can think of of Tom Hardy as an actor. He is able to do great things with subtlety. And again, what does he have to work with? A car phone. And that's it. It's amazing. But the most radical thing about Locke is I think that we have the belief, certainly if your diet of movies is predominantly Hollywood films, indie or or regular, you have this belief that drama can only come out of these extreme anxieties. Stories have to involve guns, aggression, people screaming at each other, doing horrible things, that conflicts have to be solved with violence and big pathos. This is a movie about calm and loving people. And it's radical that really I can take everyone's side and feel like nobody is acting inappropriately, that this is life, that I feel like this is a purview, I guess, in the way that some people might like reality television or hidden cameras kind of things. You really feel like a fly on the wall at a very intimate moment at a man's life where he had to confront what he thought of himself and what he hoped for the future. And uh, yeah, I was incredibly moved by the movie. So it's not even mild. I mean, I think this is really one of the great films of the last 10 years and highest of recommends. I'm 
much closer to Jacob in my feelings than Stuart, but I have to say in the time since I've watched this film, when the movie was over is when I usually go to Letterboxd, logged I watched it, give it a ranking, and I was like, where do I rank this one? Because on the one hand, yes, it's fortunately short because it's not a visual film beyond looking at Hardy, and there's only so long I care to look at any one person for a long time in a car, be it in real life or on screen. And so I found it visually tedious, but yet narratively involving. And Hardy's performance is absolutely in fucking credible. I just can't believe how much he was able to carry this story. I guess I've underestimated Hardy. I mean, I've liked him in some stuff, but I've never been a fan of his, and I've never seen what he could do until this movie. But over the time since I've seen it, I'm like, I really was invested in the work stuff, and I really was in suspense over who's the next call. And Call waiting is coming in, in the middle of a passionate conversation, and just the amount of realism to that fact of what it's like to be getting those calls when you have a call waiting coming in and the arguments are happening. Funny little story about that. That was a happy accident. They were driving around, and what happened was the car started saying, low on fuel. They overdubbed it by saying, call waiting, but every time you hear that, it was not scripted. It was just the car interrupting with a line. Ah, oh, that's funny. But, yeah, I don't know if it's mild, regular, or strong. I can tell you, it's always going to be a recommend, and it may be something that with time becomes stronger. But I definitely like the film, but I'll give it the caveat, as I mentioned at the top, I like one man plays. I like one man shows. And so when I realized what I was getting here, I was kind of grooving to it as kind of a niche sort of thing for me. It hit a sweet spot that I don't indulge in too often. But yes, a recommend and thank you again to Sean for giving us a chance to watch this and for me to discover a film and discover an aspect of an actor I'd not known before. Yeah, and if you want more, obviously there's not, I mean, I guess there could be. I, I was like, there's obviously not going to be a sequel. There's a lot about this story we don't know. I suppose they could do some kind of before sunset 10 years later. He's driving the, to pick the kid up from prison or something. I don't know. They could continue the story, but they likely won't. It feels self-contained in that respect. But Stephen Knight did, again, work with Tom Hardy on a story that has some similar elements. Our donor mentioned it, Taboo. I have gotten through about half of it. I haven't been able to see all of it, but it was a show made for FX two years ago. It's grim. It's the grimmest show I've ever seen. It's set in like 1812, where basically Tom Hardy has come back because his father has died and has been bequeathed an island that is strategically in between the British and America as they're still fighting over control of who has America. So he's basically positioning himself in the middle of post-revolutionary war politics. And meanwhile, having this romance with his sister, that's the taboo in reference, is that he has these incestuous feelings. It's super grim, but if you like Charles Dickens and just, it's got beautiful production detail, and if you like Tom Hardy and Stephen Knight, if you like this vibe that they created at Locke, I say go for it. Taboo, I, I will be finishing the show. And speaking of finishing, last Friday we finished our M. Night retrospective series with a review of Glass. If you want to hear that, 
You can become a patron or get it from our Podbean page or donate still while the donation drive is still going on. When the donation drive ends, the prices on Podbean for the individual shows will go up and they will go away for the patrons. It's always a limited time release for patrons for the current donation drives. So head to nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate and you can get the shows there. Or you can be like Sean and really sponsor the show in a big way and pick a movie, any widely released movie. As you can see, Apocalypse Now, Face Off, Lock, three widely different points of the triangle, and you could pick one as well. All the details can be found at nowplayingpatron.com. So we don't have a show for this Friday. It feels strange, right? Wait, we don't have another show coming out. But I do want to note that Groundhog's Day is this weekend. And next Tuesday, we are covering Groundhog Day, the Bill Murray comedy. Yes, it is the lead-in to our Happy Death Day retrospective series. The Happy Death Day to you is coming out on Valentine's Day because nothing says I love you like repeated murder. And so we felt if we're going to do Happy Death Day... Maybe we should start with, if not the first time loop movie, certainly the most popular one. Because after Groundhog Day, every movie like this or When I Fall is, it's Groundhog Day, but... So that's next week. And Happy Death Day to you will be our first theatrical week of release show of the year. So again, Sean, thank you for your support. Jacob Stewart, thanks for joining me for this car ride. Go on, you enjoy the game. Side just over two hours ago. I had a job, a wife, a home. And now I have none of those things. I have none of those things left. I just have myself in the car that I'm in. And I'm just driving. That's it. Thank you for listening to this now playing podcast movie review. Yeah, that was wicked! How do you listen to this? We hope you've enjoyed the show. What we're all supposed to celebrate, is that it? Celebrate what exactly? And a special thanks to Sean Ray for his support of the show and picking this movie for us to review. Okay. I'll do it because I love you. Okay then. Can you not say it, but I keep the words? No, I can't. I can't. But I can be there as fast as the traffic will allow. If you enjoyed this show, please tell others. You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. Do what they, they tell you to do. I have a lot of calls to make. Want to hear more reviews like this one? You can find hundreds of other movie reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. In our archive section are over 800 reviews. Listen to our hosts discuss horror, sci-fi, comedy, action, drama, and more. Plus, you can hear reviews of every movie based on Marvel or DC Comics. Don't listen to Why anybody else. Don't listen to anybody else until the morning. This is me and you, okay? 
A new, totally free movie review podcast is posted every Tuesday. So come back each week for another new show. If it weren't for the fact that you've been so solid for us for so many years, I'd fire you down the phone. Now Playing relies on listener support to keep operating. We are facing £10 million worth of losses in 15 minutes. So if we get that 15 minutes for the whole morning, a total shutdown, $100 million. You can support Now Playing by joining our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. Backers can get early access to reviews, unedited reviews, exclusive shows not available anywhere else, and more. Details are at nowplayingpatron.com. Uh, something has come up and I need to tell people it's urgent. At our Podbean site, you can also support the show by listening to any of our donation shows. Series like Planet of the Apes, Jurassic Park, Phantasm, Jaws, and others are available for a small, one-time contribution. He says to say you're the best man in England. You can also donate to us directly on PayPal. Details can be found by clicking the banner at the top of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. I need you to be there with enough stuff and the right heads when the sun comes up. That's it. Want 375 more Now Playing reviews? Get the Now Playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. Arnie, Stewart, Jacob, and Marjorie reviewed 125 different movies, each getting three recommends or not recommends. I'm not a reader of books. I'm not a talker. Oh, it's funny it was someone like you, someone so opposite to me, all the things I love. I mean, absolutely zero to you. You can also follow Now Playing on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. There, the hosts post new episode announcements, movie reviews, and contests, where you can win movies and soundtracks. Also, subscribe to us on YouTube for original video content. Like shit, Ivan. Like piss. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Even no matter what the situation is, you can make it good. Associate produced by Jason Latham. I need you to hold it together for me, okay? You won't be alone. I will be on the phone. And I will talk to you every five minutes. Opening skit performed by Brock and Heath. This had better be more than good. Now Playing is edited by Stephen and Arnie. You make one mistake, Dom. One little fucking mistake. And the whole world comes crashing down around you. Now Playing credits read by Brock. And he's a good man. Don't fucking dare say that to me! Don't you fucking dare! Give qualitative appraisals on my stuff and say good man like it's going off to buy a fucking ice cream! The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. I have behaved in a way that isn't like me, but now I am going to do the right thing. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. The difference between never and once is the difference between good and bad. I know that. You don't know. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. You're laughing, aren't you? You're laughing at my predicament. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of, and may not be used without the expressed written permission of, Venganza Media Incorporated. And I will be there to take care of my... 
take care of my fuck up. Now playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2019, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Okay, cool. Bye, bye, bye. bye. Yeah, did Sean give any reason why he picked this film? Yes, he did. Do you want to know? <laughs> yes. I, I felt that was implicit in the question. Yes. I don't have it in front of me. I'm just biding okay. time while I look it up. <laughs> no, I don't really care. No, you know. Did he give I a just reason? wanted to know he had a reason. <laughs> Let me get in my uh, car and I'll call him up on my hands-free set and mm-hmm. ask.